The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. It is a privilege to open God's Word each Lord today, and especially as we come to just a wonderful passage of Scripture. Every time that we come together on Sunday, it is to commemorate the fact that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. It's to think about the great sacrifice that he made on Calvary. And because he did arise from the grave, then we are assured of the promise that he made that he will return. For many weeks, we've been speaking on the return of Christ, and we've been looking at Jesus' sermon here in Matthew 24 and 25, which is called the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus taught about how that he would bring his kingdom on the earth. Our scripture reading today is at the end of the sermon, and it closes out in a way that we might well expect, that who is going to enter into the kingdom of God? Who is actually going to be there? Who is in and who is out? Now, the Bible teaches, and Jesus made it very clear, that no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will come. We don't even know if we're going to be alive at the time that Jesus comes. And so we may look at this passage of Scripture and and say, well, how does this apply to us? We're not even sure when Christ will return. So are we actually going to live in the kingdom ourselves? And as we look at this, we do need to very clearly understand that this is not a passage that it's just for far-off people living in the future somewhere, but every one of us who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are also going to live in this glorious kingdom that God is going to bring to the earth. And so it doesn't really make any difference if you're alive when Jesus comes again. If you've already gone to heaven, the Bible teaches that you will return with Christ in a glorified body that you will live in this blessed kingdom upon the earth. Now, last week we, we looked at the entire section from verses 31 to 46. But today I want to concentrate just on verses 31 through 34. And then when we come to the next message in a couple of weeks, we'll take up the remaining verses and deal with those. So we're not going to read the entire text today, but don't forget that all of this is a cohesive whole. We, we have to understand all of this to get the, the full picture of what Christ talks about in this particular section. Now, if you'll look then at Matthew 25, verse number 31, and, and I'll just ask you to stand one more time, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 25, verse number 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you uh, again for the time we have together. Lord, we do bless your name. We praise your holy name. Uh, We thank you for this great kingdom that's going to come. And Lord, we, we place all things into your hands. 
uh, all the joys and also all the sorrows. We know that they're all in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the message last week, our, our subject was judgment. And that is the primary focus of Jesus' sermon in, in this particular part. This is about God's judgment, about those that have lived through the tribulation period. And, and here we have the criteria throughout this entire section of who is going to be in that kingdom, who will live there, and who is going to be kept out. Now, the Bible very definitely teaches that there, there is a difference in people, and God is determined that he's going to separate one from the other. And the thing that God is going to judge all of us on is the principles of his righteousness. And before I need go any further, I, I, I do want you to know that God's judgment is based on his law. It's based upon sin, upon the transgression of his law. And God says that he's going to judge us according to the performance of the law and whether or not we have lived up to his righteous standard. Now, to make that very simple for all of you, let me just tell each of you, you can count on this, that you are a transgressor. That you are a breaker of God's law. You have broken God's law. And because of that, you come under the, the judgment of our God. You, you're judged according to his righteousness. He's the righteous judge. And there's none of us that has ever lived up to that perfect standard of his law. And if we're left that way, there's none of us that could ever have fellowship with God. None of us would ever be able to enter into God's blessed kingdom. But there's good news in this, and that is that Jesus Christ uh, went to the cross, and if you trusted him on that cross, he died to save you from your sins and from the judgment that should be yours if you had not believed in him. The guilt of your sins have been placed upon Jesus Christ. They've been transferred to him. And because of that sacrifice on Calvary, God judged the sinner in his place, in, in our place. Now, now, that's what we call the substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the satisfaction of the justice of God. And when you have believed in Jesus Christ, Christ satisfied God and he was punished in your place. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, says that there is no judgment to those that are in Christ. Now, as we look at this, this passage, the Bible describes here a particular judgment. And the critical factor in this is the time of judgment. That's number one on your listening sheet. We talked about it last week. That is the time of judgment. And there are various times of judgment, and we have to be careful to investigate these in the Scriptures so that we don't become confused about what judgment the Bible is speaking of. Now, there are some people who believe that the judgment in these verses is the final judgment of all time. That this is at the very end, that all people that are saved and lost are going to be at this one judgment. That's what we call the theory of general judgment. And that's held by those who don't believe that Christ intends to have a literal kingdom upon the earth. If there is no literal kingdom, then you don't have to worry about judging people to go into the kingdom. That's not necessary. So uh, here we find that there is a decision about who actually does go into the kingdom. And if it's not literal, then we don't need anything other than a final judgment. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you that those who believe that uh, there is no actual physical kingdom, 
uh, really don't have Scripture to stand on. We don't think they do because I believe that the Bible is very clear about this. There is a literal kingdom of God upon the earth and this is not the final judgment of all time that we're speaking of here. Last week I showed you that there is more than one judgment and we can distinguish those. I don't have time to go into all of that again today, but let me mention them. There is a judgment for Christians. There's a judgment for the church age. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. And the timing of that judgment is just before the tribulation begins. That's when those who have been raptured by Jesus Christ that are in the church age are going to stand before Jesus Christ and there he is going to judge them, but not about their sins. That is a judgment that has to do with the faithfulness of service. That's the time for God's people to be rewarded for their service. Christians are never judged for sin. And that's because the judgment was taken by Christ when he died on the cross. And then there's another judgment. That's the judgment of the lost. That's for unbelievers. It's called the great white throne judgment. And that is the very last judgment that takes place before the eternal state. All lost people are going to be at that judgment and they're judged according to the evil that they've done. And this is not a time to decide whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. That has already been determined. The verdict is already in for that. This is a, a judgment according to the amount of evil that people have done. Some, very frankly, are worse sinners than others. And people are going to be judged for their sins. Some are going to be punished more than others. But don't take any comfort in that because all sin requires judgment and hell is eternal and it's not a pleasant place no matter how many sins that you have. Hell is going to be a terrible place for anybody to go. But there will be some that are punished in greater degrees than others. But the passage here is not talking about either of those judgments But rather, this is talking about the judgment of the nations, and it's about those people who have lived during the tribulation. In the tribulation time, there will be millions that are saved, there are millions that are lost, and vast numbers of both of those groups are also going to be survivors of this tribulation time. Many will die, but many will survive, and this is a time of judgment for those survivors. Now, in one sense, it is a final judgment in this way that the eternal state is fixed. Those that are allowed to go into the kingdom, they will later be transitioned into glorified bodies and they'll be able to live in heaven forever. But those that are not allowed to go in, they're going to be taken away immediately to torment. So that's what the passage is about. The theme is about judgment. And that led us into further investigation in the second point of the message, and that is the people of judgment. Who are the people that are going to be judged? Well, last week we took a look at this, and we looked at them a little more closely, and we just had time to talk about the first group. The first of these is the sheep. Now, according to verse number 33, the sheep are set on the right hand. The right hand is the place of favor. The right hand is the place of blessing. And so in verse number 34, the sheep are called the blessed. And they are moved to the right hand. And they're going to go into the kingdom. Now something that you should be aware of in scripture is that sheep always refer to the people of God. When Jesus spoke of sheep, he said, the sheep hear my voice. He said, the sheep follow me. He said, the sheep know the master. 
And he said the sheep are going to be given eternal life. And he also said that the sheep are his chosen ones. So these sheep are people that were saved during this time of tribulation. And despite the hardships they've gone through, despite the trials and the persecution, the constant threats of death and the hatred of the Antichrist, they became believers. And they held on to that faith that they had in Christ. Back in chapter 24, Jesus said in verse 13, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And these are the ones that he was talking about. They believed, they were faithful, they were saved and they endured and they're rewarded with entrance into this glorious kingdom. Now there's an old song that we sing that says, it's, it, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that's what these tribulation saints are going to sing. They've been through all of these terrible times, but it was worth all of that. Because they get to see Jesus in that glorious kingdom. So the sheep are moved over to the right hand. That designates the favored place of God. And God is the judge. And God is able to separate the sheep one from the other. And he allows one group to go into his kingdom. Now remember that these are living believers. They're, they are survivors. They go into the kingdom in their physical bodies. And there they will enjoy the prosperity of the kingdom. They enjoy the untold wealth, the abundant crops, the happiness of living under a perfect government. All of that is theirs. They have children. They live to be very old. And that's an interesting point, I think. Uh, we don't actually know if there's going to be death during the millennium. I kind of think that there will, that uh, believers will eventually die, although I'm not absolutely certain of that. We're not told exactly how this works. It might be that they just live to a very old age and then God just automatically transitions them and gives them their glorified bodies. We don't know about that because the Bible is silent. So I'm not going to argue too strenuously with somebody that has a difference of opinion. So we talked a good deal about these sheep last time. But we didn't have much time to talk about the second group. And that second group is the goats. And the goats are different from the sheep. And they are always different. Never in the scriptures do we see goats that turn into sheep. And that's another way that we know that God has an elect people from the foundation of the world. Verse number 34 says that the sheep have always had a, a, a kingdom that's been prepared for them. That goes back all the way before God ever created the universe. But the goats have never had a kingdom prepared for them. And it's not as if they could have gone into the kingdom if they just turned into sheep. Now I know that's hard for us to understand because from our perspective we don't know who the sheep are. And that's not actually proven until a person puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep. Well, goats are lost too, aren't they? But Jesus always goes after the sheep. It's always the sheep that Jesus is after, not lost goats. And when he finds that lost sheep, what he does is he always brings that sheep home. He's always successful with that. And that's a beautiful picture of the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. And if that wasn't true, then we would expect to find a parable about lost goats. And Jesus would say, there are goats that are not of this fold, and I've got to go out and make sheep of them. But it's always sheep. It's never about goats. 
And so I told you that so that you'd understand that Jesus knows who the goats are too. And he's going to separate the goats from the sheep. And as soon as that separation is made, those goats are going to be taken away. Those are immediately killed and they're headed for hell. Look at verse, uh, look back at, rather at chapter 24 and uh, verse number 40. Uh, you'll remember this, uh, chapter 24, verse number 40 says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. And you remember that when we looked at this passage, I said, this is different from the rapture. That the one that is left is the one that goes into the kingdom. And the one that's taken away is the one that goes away to punishment. And that text is actually played out here in chapter 25 where we see this particular part about the judgment of the nations. Now, notice again that the passage talks about separation. As you know, the occupation of Israel for a long time had been that of shepherds. When Israel went into Egypt, they were separated from the Egyptians. They were sent to live in Goshen because the Bible says that the, that the Israelites, the shepherds, were an abomination to the Egyptians. So that separation was made. David, the, who was a great king, was the great king, was a shepherd. And the Psalms are just filled. The Psalms that he wrote are filled with references to shepherds. And then Jesus came and referred to himself as the good shepherd. And Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. And Peter refers to him as the chief shepherd. And in verse number 32, it says that like as a shepherd, Jesus is going to divide the sheep from the goats. And so Israel, being very familiar with shepherds, this was an analogy that was very easy for them to understand. A shepherd must divide his sheep from the goats because they don't always get along so easily. Goats are ornery. They don't rest very well with the sheep. They don't eat well with the sheep. The sheep are annoyed by the presence of goats. They make them uncomfortable. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving down Stony Point and traffic was going really slow and when I finally got up to the point where all the trouble was, there were some goats that had gotten out of the field, and there were two ladies that stopped their cars in the road to get out and take pictures of these goats. Goats are, are like this. They're stubborn. They, they, they want to get where they're not supposed to be. They're unruly, and people are like them. People go their own way. They don't want to listen, but sheep are nice. Sheep are easy to get along with. You don't really worry about turning your back on a sheep. I remember at the fair a few years ago, they had a petting area set up there and they had some goats in there. And there was a lady that turned her back on the goats. And this old Billy came up and got her in the back end and just turned her, you know, pushed her right over. And that's the way that goats are. You can't trust the goats. Now, Numerous times Jesus talked about separating sheep from goats, and every time that he did, he was always talking about judgment. Now, in this passage, sheep and goats are together. And another analogy, Jesus said the wheat and the tares grow together. And in still another analogy, he talked about good fish and eels that swim in the same waters. But Christ is always going to separate, separate sheep from goats and wheat from tares and good fish from bad fish. In Matthew 13, verse 49, so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them in the furnace of fire. 
there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so these goats are actually people that mistreated the sheep during the tribulation time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next time. But these are those that followed the Antichrist. They took his number. They had the 666 in their foreheads or in their hands. And they helped the Antichrist to hunt down Christians and kill them. And maybe there were some of them that weren't terribly active in their support of the Antichrist. But neither would they be identified with the Christ. And Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. So these are lost. They are goats. And Christ will judge them and take them away to punishment. Verse 46 says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. At Outreach Santa Rosa a few weeks ago, I stopped and talked to the uh, JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, that had set up their stand on the side of the street with their books. And I talked with a fellow there, and I asked him if he believed in Jesus. And he said that he did. And I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you, do you believe what he said about hell? And he didn't answer that question. But instead he turned, uh, picked up his Bible and he turned to Genesis chapter 3 and he talked about Adam and Eve and how that God said that if they ate of the tree that they would die. But God didn't say that they would go to hell. And so I suppose that what we should do is to take all of our, our uh, information, all of our theology about judgment and punishment right from Genesis chapter 3. But he would never understand this if I started to talk to him about the sovereignty of God, that that's a little bit too deep for them or much too deep. And I could have said that God didn't really need to talk to them about hell because God already knew that he was going to provide a perfect sacrifice for them by the sacrifice of himself. That Jesus, who is Jehovah God, was going to give himself for the sins of men. But that's too much for them. I couldn't talk about that. God knew that Adam was a sheep and not a goat. And so he clothed Adam and Eve with skins, and that was a symbol that they would be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to go on here. Talking about Jehovah Witnesses, that's like living with goats in the house. And I think that you understand the difference between sheep and goats. They represent whether people are in or out of the kingdom. Sheep are in and goats are out. Now, right now, if you're not saved, you don't actually know if you're a goat. The sheep know that they're sheep. They have believed, so they know that they're sheep. But if you haven't believed, and if you remain in unbelief, then you are a goat. And I can tell you something, though, that if you feel a need in your heart right now that you need Christ as your Savior, that you're lost in this condition of sin and there is no hope for you, if you start to think like that, then you're a sheep. You're starting to think about coming to Christ and that's the Holy Spirit drawing you and that tells you that you are a sheep and you will confirm that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. We know it's true because the sheep hear the master's voice and they come. And so if you come, you're a sheep. The goats will go out and they won't care anything about Christ. So you think about that when you leave. If you remain in unbelief, you're a goat. If you stay that way and you die that way, you are a goat. And you might well go away today saying, well, that pastor says some pretty offensive stuff. He called me an old stubborn goat. And that's what I'm doing. And all I'm doing is just talking like Jesus. That's the way that he talks, so that's the way that I talk. Now, let's go on. Here, here I'm, 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 it's almost 12 o'clock, and I'm just now getting to the main point of the message. 
But we've been, we've been teetering here on this big question that plays really a huge part in the disagreement of Christians. Is there a final, or is this the final judgment? And is there really going to be a literal kingdom of Christ on the earth? That's the argument of eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things. And on this subject, Christians are divided. So let's look at that for a few minutes. Number three is the proofs of a literal kingdom. And let me say again, this divides Christians. And I said Christians, because whether you believe that there is a literal kingdom or not is not a salvific issue. We can disagree with people. You can be saved and you can disagree with me on this. You'll be wrong, but you can still be saved. Now, this seems really clear to me, though, that Christ is going to come and to reign for 1,000 years on the earth. There's going to be a real kingdom with real flesh and blood people that live in the kingdom. Last year, we had some people that left the church because they didn't like that I, that I preached that there is a real kingdom of Christ that's going to come to the earth. So there's this division among Christians about it. But as we look at the scriptures, what are the proofs that there will be a literal kingdom? Well, let me start with this one, and that is the verity of a throne for Israel. The verity of it. Now, that's not really a hard word. Verity simply means the truthfulness of it. The truthfulness of God in this promise that he gave to Israel that there will be an everlasting throne. Many of you are familiar with this text that we read at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's a great passage. How much do you deflate the meaning of this passage if you say that there is no kingdom? How are you going to stick by the faithfulness of God to Israel if this tremendous promise that he's made throughout all these scriptures so many times, repeated so many times, how much do you take out of this if you say this is simply symbolism? Did you know that God promised that there would be a kingdom for Israel? And he said that it's as sure and as long, uh, as sure as long as as the sun and the moon shall endure? Let's turn to Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, uh, this is a psalm by Solomon, but we know that Solomon is not the subject personally because Solomon did not have an everlasting kingdom. And we know that Solomon did not rule in righteousness. A man that has 700 wives and 300 concubines is probably a little bit short of righteousness. Now, we don't have time to read the whole psalm, but let's look at a few verses here. Psalm 72 and uh, verse number 5. It says, they shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. Now there are three things that are readily apparent about this passage. It can't refer to Solomon. He wasn't here as long as the sun and the moon. 
I can still see the sun and the moon. I don't see Solomon. Number two, it can't be talking about the kingdom of heaven because heaven is going to be here past the time of the sun and the moon. And it wouldn't give us much assurance of eternal life if the thing that he compared it to was something that was going to pass away. And then number three, it has to be a kingdom on the earth because how long is it going to be here? He says it's going to last until the sun and the moon are gone and that's what happens at the end of the millennial age. This is when God rolls up the heavens like a scroll, the elements melt with fervent heat, the heavens being on fire will dissolve. And that's 2 Peter 3.12. So this psalm must be about the millennium. A throne for Israel has been promised as long as there is a sun and a moon. As sure as they are, so sure is the kingdom. Listen to what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me. Now you see what he's saying? God says that the kingdom is as sure as the moon and the stars. So if you can count on them, then you can count on this promise of God that he's going to bring a kingdom to the earth. Now, in that passage, what God was doing was actually giving assurance for battered Israel. They'd been through so much. They'd, they'd had all these things that have happened to him, and he's promising them that they actually will be restored into a kingdom. And I could go on. You could read about those blessings of the kingdom in many places. You might want to write this scripture down for later reference because this is great. Psalm 89, verses 29 to 37. And then also Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. And we could go to many places in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And in, in the midst of all these times of disobedience for Israel, and, and when God says, I'm going to punish you for your disobedience, he also tells them that there is going to be a promise of restoration, that they will come back to him and that he will give them a kingdom. Jeremiah 32, 42 says, and I'm sorry I didn't get this on the board in time, but it says, For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so shall I bring upon them the good that I have promised them. And this is what happens right here in the text that we're reading. These are people that obeyed. These are people that trusted Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom is returned to Israel. And those who trusted him, especially the Jews, can count on this, that the promised kingdom will come. These are the people that enter in. Now, closely related to that is our second proof, and that is the prophecy of restoration. There's the verity of the throne and the prophecy of restoration. And I could start with our passage, one of the passages that's in our text, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a kingdom that is prepared for the sheep. Now the disciples asked the Lord, I mean this whole thing started out with the disciples asking, When shall these things be? Many times in the scriptures they asked Jesus about the kingdom. And any one of those times would have been a very good time for Jesus to say, I'm sorry, there's not going to be a real kingdom. 
All of those Old Testament prophecies that were given, those are just actually types and figures. Those are symbolisms. Israel doesn't really have a future. Well, if that's so, then how does any of the discussion, starting back in chapter 21 of Matthew, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, how does any of that make sense? Just before that, Jesus them in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory, ye also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. How do you make sense of that? When are the apostles going to receive those thrones? That can't be in heaven. How are they going to judge Israel in heaven? But Jesus said, in the regeneration... And the regeneration is that great change that takes place on the earth in the millennial period. And then we go back to chapter 23 and verses 37 to 39. Here Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now Israel, Israel's rejection of Christ meant that their house would be left desolate. And we've discussed that before. Less than 40 years uh, from that time, the whole Jewish sacrificial system would be torn down. The temple would be torn down. The city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And the temple's been gone since that time, and the Jews have no temple. But in verse number 39, Jesus said, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There's a change that takes place when Christ returns to the earth. These millions of people that are saved during the tribulation will then recognize him as the great king and they will say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then the Jews will go into the kingdom and according to Ezekiel there will be a new magnificent temple that's built and Israel's kingdom will be established from sea to sea. And so how do you make sense of all that? if he's not talking about a literal kingdom. If all that he means by this is, well, you're going to die, and you're going to go to heaven. How does that improve upon Israel's status any more than the Gentiles? Why would you go through all the prophecy about Israel just to leave no difference between them and Jews, between Jews and Gentiles? Now, he could have said, there's not going to be any more Israel. And that would have simplified everything. Everything, we would have no arguments if that's what Jesus had said. Now thirdly, the third proof that we have is the consistency of Bible interpretation. That if there is no literal kingdom, how are you going to pick apart the Old Testament prophecies and say that, well, this part is figurative and this part is literal? You look at the great messianic psalm, Psalm 22, and you remember how that speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew, or rather Psalm 22 says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Was that literal? Is there any 
hidden secret meaning to this, that they pierce my hands and my feet? Is there something mystical that we don't know about the parting of his garments? Well, no. His hands and his feet were literally nailed to the cross. And his garments were gambled for. They were literally divided among the soldiers. Micah 5 verse number 2 says that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Is that mystical Bethlehem? Or is that a real place? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem in chapter 21, that's what kicked off all the discussion about the kingdom. The people hailed him as a king. And what did Matthew write? He said, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Sion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. The prophet Zacharias said that, and Jesus rode in on a donkey. And there was no mystical meaning to that. It was a real donkey. No symbolism. He sat on the donkey and he rode in. That's all there is to it. That's all you're going to get out of it. So why would we pick a prophecy about the kingdom and we would say, oh, oh no, that's not literal. This is a, a symbol. There's not going to be any real throne of David on the earth. There is no place for Israel. There's no time of prosperity. There is no longevity in the kingdom. There's no time of worship at the temple. It's all symbolic. There is no kingdom. How do you do that? How do you just throw out and say, well, this, this is a symbol and make all that go away? Now, folks, here's the only difference between any of these prophecies. There was enough time that went by for the prophecies for the, uh, the first advent to be fulfilled. The birth in Bethlehem, the ride on the donkey, the death of the cross. There was enough time that went by to fulfill those prophecies. And the only difference between those and the second advent of Christ is that just enough time has not gone by. And when enough time has gone by, the second advent's going to happen, the prophecies will be fulfilled, and there will be a literal kingdom that comes to the earth. These things will happen just like things happen in the first advent. So Jesus talked about a kingdom, and he talked about coming in power and glory. He said, as the lightning shines from the east to the west. Is that symbolism? And he speaks of saints and angels that come back with Christ. Is that fantasy? Maybe you think so, but I don't. You explain that away and there's this huge gaping hole in the promises of God. And you're always left wondering, when is he telling the truth about this and when is he pulling our leg? And then fourthly, and we need to stop here, and that is the authority of Christ over creation. Now let's go to Psalm chapter 2. And I want you to stick with me just a little bit longer. This is way better than lunch. Um, you, you've, heard, you've heard about this, I think, that Jesus came once. You did know that? And you knew that they hated him and they called him a, a liar? You knew that, didn't you? And, and you knew that they beat him and they nailed him to the cross? You, you've heard about all that? And you knew that they mocked him and... They refused to receive him as a king. You, you knew about that? And in their mockery, they placed a sign over the cross that said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Have you heard about that sign that they placed on the cross? So when is he going to show Israel that he was right? When are the remnant of the Jews in Isaiah chapter 53 going to look back at the one they pierced? And say, you know something? He was right. 
Well, look at Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now, in our text, Jesus judges the nations to rule over them. That's what Psalm 2 is describing. When is he going to set the blasphemy of the tribulation right? When is he going to prove that he is the real Christ and that the Antichrist was a phony? And then let me ask you this. When is he going to take this earth back from Satan, who is called the God of this world, and show that the world really belongs to him? Now, when I was talking to those JWs, I asked them, I said, Do you believe that Jesus is God? And this young man said, Yes. And Satan is also called God. And so to them, Satan and Jesus are equal gods. Do you believe that? When do you think that Jesus is going to show the JWs that that isn't true? Do you think he's just going to blow everything up in a fit of rage and he's not going to establish himself as the king? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read this and um, then one more scripture and we'll be done. Paul talks in this scripture about how that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. It's the guarantee that we shall also be raised. And thinking of that, is that also a myth? Is the, is the bodily resurrection, is that symbolism? 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now there it tells us that Jesus will put down all rule, all authority, and all power. He will establish himself as the ruling authority. And then when all of that's done, and he's squashed all the rebellion that's on the earth, then he will surrender the kingdom up to God. Jesus will demonstrate his authority. And the world is not going to end until he has his feet on the necks of all them that oppose him. That's the promise that we find in the Old Testament. That's the teaching of Jesus. That was taught by Paul, by Peter, and also by Jude. So why would we ever want to resist what Scripture says? 
Now his last act then is to put down the last rebellion on the earth and that's when the end of the kingdom on earth is done. That's when it's all done and the kingdom is surrendered to God. Now we turn to one last passage. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Is Jesus going to reign for a thousand years? Where do we get the figure? How do we know that the kingdom of God, it won't be six months? Or how do we know it's not ten years or a hundred years or, or not at all? And how do we know that it's not indefinite? That's what a lot of people say. It's just indefinite. Well, let's look at Revelation 20 beginning at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season." And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. And shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired. Satan will be loosed out of his prison. Six times in that passage. John says one thousand years. And did you know that there's no other place in prophecy where a specific time frame, a number is repeated this often? So what do you think that the Lord wants us to draw from that? Oh, he's going to have a, he's going to have a kingdom that lasts 150 years. Let me ask you, if you were going to pick a length for the kingdom, how long do you think that it would last? I mean, based on the evidence that you've seen, I would say a thousand years. That'd be a pretty good guess. That would be what I would say. This can't be symbolism. All, all this stuff about the kingdom can't be referring to heaven. I mean, I think that he would use terms like eternal if he was talking about heaven. No, he's talking about the kingdom on this earth. So if he meant that to be a symbolic thing, why would he say 1,000 years six times? So I think we just take it the way that Jesus intended, or the way the scriptures intend. He comes to reign on the earth and it will last a thousand years now here's the good news in a lot of good news that we've talked about today you can live in that kingdom that if he waits another two thousand years to come then you can still live in that kingdom as I said at the beginning the glorified saints will come back with Christ and they'll go into the kingdom in glorified bodies and they'll live right beside the sheep the the physical people that came through the tribulation but do you know the difference between us and them? We will rule and reign with Christ. You can live in Christ's kingdom and you can rule with him if you trust him as your savior. And so whether he comes today or in a thousand years, the kingdom will be yours to enjoy. And if you don't believe, the news isn't very good. There is no kingdom for you. Unbelievers don't get a kingdom. Unless you call darkness and fire and brimstone and suffering and torment a kingdom.
So they get no kingdom because there wasn't one prepared for them. So I think the choices are clear here. Uh, can you prove that you're one of God's sheep? Well, in fact, you can. You, you can prove that you're a sheep. And the way that you do that is you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That if you realize that you are a helpless sinner, you can do nothing for yourself, you can't save yourself, then if you will just trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be able to be in his kingdom. All the others are going to be out. And folks, I can tell you it's better to be in than it is to be out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this great promise that we have of your kingdom that will come to the earth. We know that we're undeserving of that. Uh, we should all be kept out. But because of that great sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary, you have made it possible for us to live in this wonderful kingdom forever. Lord, I pray that you would speak to some, some heart today, some soul. They would come to you in faith. We know by this passage that all those who refuse you, that stay lost in their sins, will never see the kingdom of God. And what is promised is eternal torment. Lord, we pray that would happen to no one here. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to hearts today. Draw us to you. Uh, we just ask that, the, that faith would become real today in Jesus Christ. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.